If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to be opening to the book of Romans, the book of Romans in your New Testament. Uh, if you're a guest of ours, I want to say welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, you've picked a great day to be here because uh, we're starting this new series, and so you're right on the front end of this series. And I would invite you, uh, if you haven't already, uh, if you are a guest, if you'll take out that card in the pew rack in front of you and point your camera phone to it, it'll take you to an online connection card, uh, as well as anyone who has any prayer requests today, if you'll uh, take that card, will take you there as well. It's been said that the epistle to the Romans is the cathedral of the Christian faith. Bible teacher Warren Wearsby says that if a Bible student wishes to master any one book of the Bible, let it be Romans. An understanding of this book is a key to unlocking the entire Word of God. Swiss, Swiss theologian Frederick Louis Godet says, every great spiritual revival in the church will be connected as effect and cause with a deeper understanding of the book of Romans. One author I read said, Christianity has been the most powerful transforming force in human history. And the book of Romans is the most basic, most comprehensive statement of true Christianity. And I like how our college group here at Homewood said it, Romans is like spiritual calculus for the soul, meaning that it can be hard. I've learned now that I am over 40, probably the oldest, the hardest thing that I've had to do is to climb out of a foam pit. Take a look at the screen. Now what you can't hear in this video is my daughter's laughing as she is filming me getting out of this foam pit, which took way longer uh, than it should have uh, for me to get in. I can, only, I can tell you that I only jumped in that foam pit once, and it did not take me long to figure out I would not jump into that foam pit again. Um, but if we're honest, this embarking upon the study of Romans uh, can sometimes feel like, if I'm being honest personally, can sometimes feel like climbing, crawling out of a, a foam pit. Augustine was converted by hearing a passage of Romans read. Martin Luther made Romans the centerpiece of the Reformation. He said, it's impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Most recently, or more recently, Swiss theologian Karl Barth made his exposition to the letter of the Romans central to what he was doing in the aftermath of World War I. It is by wrestling with the letter to the Romans that Christians for centuries now have wrestled with the central elements of our faith. Uh, so why Romans? Uh, why now? Uh, well, if you're new to Homewood, uh, one of the practices that I have implemented over the years has been for us to, to walk through a book of the Bible together, uh, usually over an extended period of time. Uh, and, and I do this for several reasons, but, but one of the reasons that I do this is because I believe it keeps us honest. I believe it keeps me honest. 
Um, it is convenient sometimes to just pass over or skip over uh, passages that are hard. And so, uh, going by a verse-by-verse verse approach doesn't give you the freedom to do that. You have to go through every single verse, you know, if you're going to walk through a book. And so, uh, I like how uh, the late theologian uh, John Stott defines this uh, as scholars talk about expository preaching. He defines expository preaching as this, to expound Scripture is to bring out of the text what is there and to expose it to uh, expository, to expose it to view. The expositor opens what appears to be closed, makes plain what is obscure, unravels what is knotted, and unfolds what is tightly packed. Uh, and the, let me just say that, that Romans is tightly packed. It is a, a tightly packed writing. Uh, this, I couldn't really confirm this. Some, some believe this to be true. Uh, some kind of debate it. Uh, but it was said that the first 100 years of uh, law, law school, or the first 100 years of Harvard's law school, that they would have students actually go through the book of Romans. Not, not because of some theological reason, but because of the argument and the way that the argument is laid out, uh, the way that Paul lays it out in the book of Romans. The author of Romans is Paul, equipped by the Holy Spirit and given the wisdom that God gave him. I've waited uh, 12 years uh, to preach through uh, the book of Romans. And I, I find some uh, consolation in realizing that everything that I'm going to preach to you over the next several weeks, I don't fully understand. How's that for a confession? And so, uh, my only consolation is that I'm, I'm in good company with the Apostle Peter. In 2 Peter 3.15, Peter says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Verse 16, he writes, the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. If it was hard for Peter to understand Paul, you better believe that for some of us it's going to be a hard. Yet I pray. I pray that we do not back down from faithfully engaging and being formed by the Word of God through the power of the Spirit. May we not become ignorant and unstable people, as Peter just described. Uh, so today's really going to be an introduction. It's going to be a little bit of background, and then, and then next week we'll, we'll dive more deeply into the first uh, chapter. Uh, but Paul likely wrote Romans from Corinth. He had uh, what is called and amanuensis, you've probably never heard this word, you'll hopefully see it on the screen if it's still there, but it is just a secretary, it is a, a scribe of sorts, and this amanuensis' name was Tertius. And so we read that in Romans 16 verse 22, that this is, this is who wrote the letter. But Paul is the one who is giving him the instruction uh, to write. And so he's, he's saying these things to this scribe, Tertius, and in Romans, Paul works through what is the most important and most pressing questions ever considered by the human race. He's, he's writing to Christians, but whether you're Christian or not, Paul shows us through meticulous logic 
that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only answer to these questions. It is literally the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. This is what he's going to say in chapter 1. And if you go through the biblical text, there's not many things that are referred to as the power of God. But Paul is going to refer to the gospel as the power of God. I appreciate Jordan reading about Paul's conversion story in Acts chapter 9 just a few moments ago, and I hope that you'll discuss that story some in your connect group. Uh, You'll see a a video map that's just scrolling on the screen to kind of give us some geography of of where some of these things are taking place. And after Paul's encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, he spent two decades traveling and planting churches. And and what does he have to show for it? This is around the year 56, 57 AD, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, But can you imagine how the performance review would go for Paul? We are people who, who love performance reviews. Or we have to endure performance reviews from time to time. Can you imagine Paul's performance review? There's this backbiting and and this bickering that's happening in Philippi, a church that he planted. There's competition going on in in Corinth over spiritual gifts. Legalism is, is swarming in Galatia. In the book of Titus, liars and lazy gluttons are are plaguing Crete. How's that on a scale of one to five in your performance review? All these things are happening. Now, to be fair, he's had his moments. I mean, he was involved in a jailbreak in Philippi. He was involved in debating philosophers in Athens. He was involved in in, uh, witnessing a boy come back to life in Troas. You remember that boy's name? Eutychus. He's been involved in in all of these things, but the misfortunes have really outpaced what many would consider a successful performance review. But no one could have guessed that it would be Paul's letters that lay the foundation for the Christian doctrines of the church. And arguably no single letter has shaped our doctrine more than the letter to the Romans. Thirty years have passed since the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul has been on his third missionary journey. He's visiting churches, planting churches in Asia Minor, Antioch, Syria, Lystra, Derbe, Iconium, Ephesus for two years, a riot. And as it happens in Ephesus, so he's on his way to Macedonia, and he visits Philippi and Thessalonica and, and Berea. And ultimately, he arrives in Corinth, and it's there that the Spirit uh, stirs something in Paul for, for the gospel to travel further west on into Spain. But on the way to Spain is this little city called Rome. And so, Paul understands that, that he's a controversial figure in Rome. And so, what he has to do is, is, is he has to write a letter before he gets there. He's going to write a letter first. He needs to explain the gospel that he is going to preach. So, in Paul's day, that, that word uh, gospel, it, it meant news, good news. Uh, we have typically taken that word today and we've ascribed it, you know, specifically to to religion or, or to Christianity, but in Paul's day that there was, 
there were several types of, of news, good news that, that could have traveled. And so Paul is, is having to explain which good news he's preaching. So he gets Tertius, as we mentioned a few moments ago, and he begins to write. Look with me in Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. I had a college student call me this week and was, had to interview somebody who was in ministry, and so uh, she was interviewing me, and one, one of the questions was, you know, what, what was, what's the greatest uh, compliment that you've re- received as a ministry leader? And, and I, I told her that the greatest compliment that I've ever received is that someone would refer to me as a trusted servant of Jesus Christ. Not because we've done all these great things here or we're doing all these things in the community, a trusted servant of Jesus Christ. This is how Paul starts his letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 2, the gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. One of the things you're going to see in Romans is, is how often that, that, that Paul references the Holy Scriptures, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, how, how often that he refers back to these. Regarding his son, verse 3, who has to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the center of the gospel. The gospel is not just some message about how you can be saved. It's not simply good advice about how to reorder your life. It's news about something. It's news about something that the the one true God has done in and through Jesus of Nazareth. This is who God has declared to be the Messiah. This is who God has declared to be the anointed one. That word Christ just means anointed one. It's not Jesus' last name. So he is the Christ. He is the anointed one. And this revelation is going to be unpacked meticulously in Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul goes on to say in verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The ultimate theme of Romans is about God's revelation of Himself and His purposes in Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, the Anointed One. And yet Paul gives us the bad news before he gives us the good news. He knows that we need to understand our own unrighteousness. And we'll dive deeper into that over the next few weeks. God's holy hostility toward sin, a righteous hatred of wrong. And how could a loving God feel anything less? My guess is that some of you who are familiar with Romans are already speculating. Uh, If you're not familiar with Romans, 
if you've not studied it before, you know, welcome. Uh, so glad you're here. We're going on this journey together. But if, if you're familiar with Romans, my, my guess is some of you are already speculating. I wonder what the preacher is going to say about this passage or that passage. And I would suggest that a better posture will be asking the question, what will the Spirit of God through the Word of God say to us? What will the Spirit of God through the Word of God say to me? And in humility, will you and I be prepared to receive it? In humility, will we allow the spirit of truth to convict us of our own sin? Or will we sit in pride, preferring to condemn the sin of our neighbor? So, as we dive into the text, Paul is clear as he writes that he views himself as the worst of sinners. Paul, also known as Saul, was a Christian killer before he was a Christian leader. And you can hear the heaviness, the weight of sin in Paul's own life in the words that he has Tertius right. If you flip over a few pages to, to Romans chapter 7, verse, verse 24, here's what we, we read from Paul. Here's his statement with an exclamation point. What a wretched man am I. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? You can almost imagine a, a pause here as he's, he's, he's instructing Tertius to write, and he says these words. You can, you can almost imagine Paul just pausing right here for a moment. It may, may have just been a brief moment. I don't know. But you can imagine him just pausing and reflecting on this statement, what a wretched man I am, and, and who will rescue me from this body that is subject to, to death? And then he would instruct Tertius in the next verse, verse 25. He defies logic. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Romans has a very careful structure. Uh, N.T. Wright, scholar, would, would liken it to a, a symphony with, with four movements. Chapters one through four is a movement. Chapters five through eight, another movement. Chapters nine through 11, the third, in chapters 12 through 16, these, these four movements that exist in concert with one another. Several themes within these movements we want to look at quickly that are worthy of our focus. If you have your Romans journal and you want to jot some of these down, I would encourage you to do that, go back and reflect on them. I would also encourage you, if you did pick up one of the Romans journals, that you write your name in it, uh, not if you leave it behind, but when you leave it behind, we can call you and tell you to come get it, all right? Here's a, a few of those themes. One that we're going to see in the next few weeks is the reality, the danger, and the power of sin. 
The sin's the, the deepest problem that human beings face and has eternal consequences. This is Romans 1 and 2. And what a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. We get to chapter 3 and Paul reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then he moves on and says, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And so this is going to be the second theme that we dive into after the first, and that is that, that God's grace is real and it's available to all people. Through Jesus, every person is invited into this relationship with the Father to be cleansed of their sin, to have those sins washed away. I love the song we sang just a moment ago. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he goes on in chapter 6, what shall, we, what shall we say then? Shall we just go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were, were baptized into his death? Which leads us to the third theme, that becoming like Jesus, it takes a lifetime. That God has broken our change and set us free, yes, but the battle with sin continues. Our old way of life is dead. We're alive in Jesus, but the, the process of spiritual growth, the process of becoming like Jesus, it takes a lifetime and demands continual surrender to the, to the will and to the ways of God. That's Romans 6-8. through 8. Romans 9 through 11, that God's story is bigger than our story. In a world that uh, one of our shepherds, I appreciate our shepherds sharing last week, and uh, I know you were blessed by that. I was blessed by that as well. And one of our shepherds shared that, you know, this, this, this idea, that, that, that this cultural idea that we're, everything's individual, it's about me, it's about me, and, and God's story is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. You, you see these movements even in the, in the biblical narrative of creation and, and fall and, and redemption and restoration and even new creation. You, you, you see these, these movements, and we're part of a spiritual family tree that spans the Testaments in the Bible, and God is engrafting us into a bigger story and a family than we can even imagine. The fifth theme is that we walk in the pathway of love. That, that Christians follow in the steps of their Savior. This means that, that we walk in this pathway of love and a world that's driven by this self-centeredness and, and selfish ambition that we humbly serve and we sacrificially love others. That's Romans 12 and 13. And then Romans 14 through 16, God calls us to live in fellowship. The followers of Jesus are, are like a group of fellow sojourners that we're all on the same journey. And I want to remind us this morning that wh whatever it is that you're uh, walking through, whatever it is that you're going through uh, right now, that you are not alone. You may feel alone, 
You may have moments of, of isolation, but you're not alone. When you receive that diagnosis, you're not alone. When there's doubt and questions about what you believe, you are not alone. When there's moments of misunderstanding, when there's relational strife that's happening in your marriage relationship or with your, your children or your grandchildren, you are not alone. When you feel like you are the only one that is walking through something, and, and yes, your story is unique, but it's, it's not unique to God. And so, so w whatever it is that you are walking through, that, that you are reminded today that you're not alone. May we believe that, and may we live into that reality, that we are not alone. Any given Sunday, I, I get up, and I don't know everybody's story, but I know a lot of them. I know those who have had a, a really rough week. Some of the things that you've gone through, some of the things that you're enduring right now, some of the things that you are, are just having to, to have this, this mental real estate that is just occupying your, your, your mind and your heart all the time. But I want to, us to remember today that you, you are not alone, that, that God calls us to live in fellowship with one another. So three, three quick takeaways. One is be ready. Be ready. I, I got a, a text from uh, one of our ladies. I, I love to see the, the generational span of the ladies that participated in yesterday's and Friday's IF gathering. And one of the ladies texted me and said, you know, one of the, one of the takeaways for her was this question that what if you knew, what if you knew that Jesus was returning in the next 10 years? How would that change the way that you live right now? What does it look like to be ready? Number two is be reading. <laughs> I want to invite you to be reading the book of Romans for yourself, not just hearing what the preacher has to say about it every week, but that you are in the Word of God for yourself. Uh, you can, I read it uh, all the way through yesterday. It takes about an hour. And I want to encourage, even if you're listening to it on an audio Bible or, or reading it and, and just letting it, and maybe you need to read a chapter a day, that takes 16 days, but I want you to be in the Word of God, us to be in the Word of God together, reading the book of Romans. And the third is to be real. To be real about how the Spirit of God is moving through the Word of God in your own life. Be real about that. Don't put on a facade or a mask or, you know, try to clean up, and, and, but to be real about how the Word of God is changing our hearts, changing our, our minds, transforming. Paul's going to say in chapter 12 to don't, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We can't, we can't program transformation here at church. That's a, that's a Spirit of God work. And so, may we allow the Spirit of God to do what the Spirit of God does. Let's pray this morning. So, Father, we're grateful for this opportunity to walk through 
this letter to the Romans. God, we, we ask that your will be done. Uh, we ask that you will open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds. Father, we, may we uh, be intellectually honest with the things that we um, unpack in this, this letter. Uh, Father, may we be uh, open to the work that you're doing inside each and every one of us. And, and God, I do pray for uh, just us as a church family that we will, uh, we will be renewed in such a way that, that our eyes just get f- so fixated on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that our, our desire is to become like him, to follow him, the one who says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, not just any old rest, not just a quick afternoon nap, but rest for our souls. Father, that's the deepest type of rest that we long for. Father, may your your work be done. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus that we pray. Amen.